In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This is the third Sunday of Lent. There are six Sundays total counting Palm Sunday, so we are very close to the halfway mark in our Lenten journey. We are walking through this uh, wilderness wandering in an effort to uh, reflect upon and recognize our own sin and our need for a Savior. And when we think about sin and are entering into sin, we recognize that it doesn't begin with an action, it begins with a thought, with a desire of the heart. And so our own passions, our own hungers and thirsts are what direct us uh, towards either righteousness or sin. And so we need to look at those uh, devices and desires of our hearts. And what better place to reflect upon that than in, um, in Exodus, here in chapter 17, where the nation of Israel is in the wilderness and they're thirsting for water, and they allow their thirst to uh, gain such a power over them that they begin to uh, argue with God and they begin to reject Him. This isn't the first time we've seen this. Uh, we've been watching as they have uh, witnessed miracle after miracle, as the Lord has helped them time and again through his strong right arm. And uh, sometimes we think that if we were to perceive the miracles that the nation of Israel did, that we'd have great faith, that if we saw these things, that we would have such a wonderful faith. And yet, that's not what the record of Scripture tells us, right? We see them time and again be saved and then say, where are you now? And so we saw them cross over uh, the, the Red Sea and we saw them enter into the wilderness and we saw them be invited to walk into the Promised Land, a, a short distance really from uh, their leaving Egypt and yet their fear led them away from entering in and so they uh, have to wander in the wilderness for these 40 years. And in this wilderness they become hungry and we just a couple of chapters before uh, chapter 17 see the Lord provide them miraculously with the, the manna from heaven and with these quail. So they have bread and they have meat to eat. And so now they've had their bellies filled with this food and then they thirst. And instead of saying the Lord will provide as he has for us time and again, they immediately go to this negative intent. They immediately think the Lord is trying to kill us. The Lord is trying to, to harm us, right? Uh, this is the, uh, the quarreling that we read about. They say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us, right? And if you're like me, you know what that's like to uh, become despondent, to start to feel helpless and, and to feel hopeless. And it's very easy in that place of hopelessness and helplessness to, to become angry and to feel small and to blame others, right? And to blame God. Why did you lead me to this place? Why did you do this to me? And so that's where the nation of Israel is. They're in this small place of of focused upon their hunger and their thirst. And they even ask, is the Lord among us or not? And so they reject the Lord, they reject His presence, they reject and forget about the help that He has provided. But the Lord is faithful. Well, they forget the Lord is faithful and Moses is obedient. Just as we saw Abram do what the Lord told him to do, to go when the Lord says go, Moses is told to strike the rock to bring forth water, and Moses is obedient to God. The Lord is faithful, and Moses is obedient. And they're provided with water, and they drink. And this promise, in faithfulness and in obedience, to provide for us always, 
is brought here again in John's Gospel, chapter 4, when Jesus is walking through this uh, region of Samaria. You remember that in this portion of John's Gospel, he has uh, just left Jerusalem, and he's on his way to the region of Galilee. And as he walks from Jerusalem to the region of Galilee, he has to go through uh, Samaria. And you'll remember that the Samaritans are cousins of the Jews. They're members of the nation of Israel. They're so close. They're members of the nation of Israel, but not Jews. You remember that in the great civil war after Solomon, that there was a division, a civil war, and there's the southern kingdom of Judah, right, where we get the, the term Jews, and there's the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom of Judah is the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And all the other tribes are in the north, right, led by uh, the tribe of Ephraim. And they divide, and they stop worshiping in Jerusalem, and they begin to worship on this Mount Gerasim that's right near this well of Jacob, where Jesus is meeting with this woman. So when she says, we worship on this mountain, she's talking about Gerasim. And so the Samaritans have been taken over by that northern uh, empire of the Assyrians, and they get renamed the Samaritans by, by the Assyrians. And so they know the scriptures, at least the law, they know the first five books, and they know that there's the coming of the Messiah, but they've rejected the prophets, and they've rejected true worship in Jerusalem. And because of that, we read the Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans, both members of the nation of Israel. But the Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. And so this is the first reason why we would be shocked that Jesus is speaking to this woman. John's telling us he's not supposed to. He's a Jew. The second reason we get told uh, kind of in a brief roundabout way by the disciples, they're shocked to see that he's talking to a woman, right? In the ancient world, a woman who was unattached would not be talking to a man by himself. The only way that she could talk to him is if her man was there, right? Her, her father or, or her husband, right? And then the men would talk to the woman through each other. So for him to talk to a Samaritan and for him to talk to a woman is radical. And then when we get to know a little bit more about her, we realize that she's, as we say, living in sin, that she's not married to this man uh, that she's living with. And so now we've got a third reason why Jesus should not be, according to the Jewish custom, be talking with her. She's a woman, unattached, living in sin. And she's a Samaritan. And yet he offers her living water. The Holy Spirit. He promises her the Holy Spirit, which is a well that lives within us, that is ever flowing, ever new, ever filling out and pouring forth. This water never ends. And no matter where we are, what's going on in our life, when we recognize our passions, when we recognize the temptations, when we recognize our hunger and thirst, when we turn to the Lord, when we turn to that well of living water, we rely upon the Lord to fill us and the Lord to refresh us and for Him to give us hope, then we're able to be renewed and turn our passions toward what is good and whole. And so Jesus is offering her to turn away from these bodily temptations and to turn towards the Lord as we do during Lent to provide all that she needs. And when she says that she wants that living water, He says, go and find your husband. And she goes and she tells the townspeople. So this is very important. When she says that she wants living water, Jesus says, go and tell others. 
And this is how the living water springs forth from us. When we are willing to proclaim the name of the Lord, when we're willing to tell others about the Messiah, when we're willing to share the gospel, when we're willing to tell people, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, and He's pouring forth from me and giving me hope and joy, then we are renewed in that living well. But if we ignore it, or we stifle it, or we don't tell others, then we don't recognize, we don't turn to that living water that could refresh us. And so she has this experience now, and now the townspeople, when they hear, have this experience of this living water. And then the disciples come, and they're shocked that he's talking to her. And they, instead of speaking directly to him about this, to get instruction to learn why it is that he would speak to her, they try to change the subject. Let's have lunch, right? We just went to town to get food. Let's have some food. And Jesus, who will not be dissuaded by them, who will not be turned to another topic, says, I already have food. And so now we have, again, Jesus' perfect fulfilling of what the, the Israelites were supposed to do in the wilderness here in this region of Samaria, right? Where they've been hungering and thirsting and crying out and saying, Lord, why have you abandoned us? Jesus says, I have living water. And I have bread. And the bread that he has brings us again back to Abraham, right? Who did what the Lord told him to do. Jesus says what? I have bread, and this bread is what? To do the will of him who sent me. To accomplish his work. So the Holy Spirit pours forth living water. And then when we do the work of God, when we do his will... We are fed by His Word. We're renewed, we're strengthened through obedience, through faithfulness, through loyalty, through faith. We are strengthened as we do the will of God. And so now Jesus has revealed both the water and the bread. And the townspeople, when they come to know Jesus, not just on her account, but in their own experience, they too experience him as the savior of the world and they too proclaim him as the Christ, as the savior of the world. It's interesting that it's given to Samaritans, who as we say are practically Gentiles. They're living as Gentiles. They're not keeping the purity laws. They're not worshiping in Jerusalem. And so the question for us that is begged is, how can the Samaritans participate in salvation? How can Gentiles participate in salvation? And how do they even know uh, what it is to do the will of God? How can they even recognize it if they haven't been given the law, if they haven't recognized it in Revelation? And this is the, really the whole point of, of Paul's letter to the Romans, right? Because he comes in and, and, and he recognizes that the church in Rome is divided between Jews and Gentiles. And the Jews are saying they can have no participation in, this, in the Messiah until they become Jews and they receive circumcision. And Paul is saying they're able to when they submit to the Lord and receive that water and bread that was preached to the Samaritan woman. And so he shows these two laws the law of revelation to the Jews and the natural law that is given to all mankind. And he says, 
All of mankind is given a natural law that when they follow it, they know good from evil, and they're able to participate in the righteousness of God. This is what we see across the spectrum. When we look at other cultures, when we look at, at, at ancient uh, laws, we see over and over again that they know uh, that stealing is wrong, they know that lying is wrong, that they know that adultery is wrong. Any child on a playground knows when something is fair and not fair. They know right from wrong. It's written in their hearts as they're created by God. And St. Paul describes the natural law by saying when we look at the creation, when we look at the world around us, we will know things about God. We will know His supremacy. We will know His holiness. And this is the call for us as Christians and has been through the centuries for us to participate in a science that is devoted to reflecting upon God and His creation. Because we know that if we are careful observers of God's creation, then we will come to know something of God. And St. Paul says, when we are careful observers of creation, we will see, first and foremost, that human intimacy is organized into the right way of living. And that when we are intimate in marriage, between a man and a woman, rightly ordered, we have the blessing of children. And when that relationship is faithful and chaste, then it's a blessing not only to them, but to the community and to the whole world. And we know this if we simply look at the way that our bodies are created. If we look at the, the nature of those organs of our bodies that are made for human intimacy, we can see that they're rightly ordered for this way, for the begetting of children. But if we don't look at our bodies in that way, if we don't look to see the way that they're created, then we fall into homosexuality, into all kinds of other sins that cause damage to the body and that promote disease and death. And we fall into that when we don't reflect upon the way that we were created, the way that our bodies were created, and the way that nature has been ordered. And once we turn away from that, and once we start to look towards idols, and we worship celebrity, or we worship people, or we worship creatures, or we worship money or power, or any of those other things, then our minds become as corrupt as those things that we worship. Because what we worship is what we become like. If we worship stone, our minds and hearts become stone. If we worship the living God, then we reflect His Spirit, His love, and His truth. If we worship celebrity, and we worship greed, and we worship gossip and slander, and we worship sexual immorality, then that's the way that our hearts and minds will bend, and we will be broken, unable to tell right from wrong. So much so that when people begin to worship those things, they begin to feel that they have no power over themselves. And so you'll often hear, we can't tell people how to rightly order their intimacy because they can't overcome their impulses. They can't control their impulses. And yet often those are the same people that want to persecute and, and take away the livelihood of people that fall into sin. And don't want to strengthen our young people and, and those in our communities to be able to show restraint and to be able to show right ordering in their relationships. So not only do we have a responsibility to teach the right ordering of human sexuality and human intimacy, but we have a responsibility to teach discipline and to teach how to walk in godly ways and how to look to see the creation and, and how the Lord puts into our hearts and minds all those things necessary to turn <clears throat> towards that food and drink that is His righteousness. And St. Paul does not shy away from calling it righteousness. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. 
In other words, for us to live right, we have to rightly order our hearts and minds in the obedience and loyalty to God and to his natural law in creation. And when we do that, when we are open to God's righteousness, that spring of living water wells up. And it's not just a water that feeds and refreshes us, but it's a water that would feed and refresh all those around us. That living well becomes so powerful and so prolific that it would be an offering to all those that would come to hear of the saving embrace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, of his love for us, of his desire for us to live rightly ordered lives, to worship the Lord, and so to have everlasting life because we worship the God of life. We worship the God of love. And we will become like him as we worship him and devote our lives to his faith. Amen. Amen. Amen.